we started off doing components because that was the original business plan really mm. but what i realized quite early on was there was there were no commercial suppliers of cubesats people were building cubesats but it's mostly universities mm-hmm. or research organizations so there was no there was no companies doing it and it was, it was still being very much dismissed by all the big companies oh mm-hmm. cubesats are toys um and all the space agencies weren't really taking much notice of it you know but the funny thing is by the way see to make a satellite that's that small to do all the same things that a larger satellite does it's not a toy it's very very difficult to do that mm-hmm. so but we, we started off quite early um looking at ways to do our first satellite and develop that competence so we worked from a, i'd say about 2007 we were actively trying to pursue that and it took us until 2014 to get something launched so it shows you how long it took and mm-hmm. um, we had no money and um, that was the biggest problem i raised in total over over the years with Space before we became EEC Space, less than a million dollars. So it's, I mean, you see these other companies today that are raising tens of millions of dollars and doing different things. So we done all that with pretty much nothing, no money. So it's very difficult, um, very bootstrapped way of doing it. This is Jason Kanigan, host of the Cold Star Project, founder of Cold Star Technologies, this thing, a data science and process improvement firm. I am here with Craig Clark, Finally, man, you are one of the first people I asked when I switched over to space fully uh, back in the fall. <laughs> and we're now in the spring. And it's just, you know, you got a real business stuff going on. And, and uh, you know, we needed, we needed a little pause here for you to be able to meet. So it's awesome that you're here. You are the founder and CSO at a company that is now known as AAC Clyde Space. And uh, it's very cool. You are doing exactly the kind of thing that I'm interested in, which is manufacturing small sats, cube sats. Uh, So welcome. Yeah, thank you. And sorry it's taken so long. It's been a lot on. (laughs) That's okay. You know what? And I'm going to pop out here and say, for those uh, thinking about hosting their own show or podcast, it's not the uh, technical side of it that's the grind or the hard part or anything like that. It's the relentless (laughs) going after booking folks. And, And... um, and it's not taking no for an answer. I don't think I like pursued you intensely or anything. Like I left you alone for for some months and that. But uh, you know, if you want if you want a guest, you've got to stick with it, and it may not be a super quick thing. So you kind of got your your uh, chops at this company called Surrey Satellite Tech. You were there for eleven years as a team leader in in a couple different roles in that. And I'm curious, like, what was the most important thing that you learned in those roles? Well, it was, I mean, Surrey Satellite Technology, where I joined them um, when there was about 20 or so people. And that company spun out of the University of Surrey. So it really was a a startup kind of stage. They were the best known company in the world for small satellites at the time. This is back in 1994. But it was also because it was in a university, it was a very academic research environment. It's quite relaxed. It wasn't very commercial. Um, And there was, well, I think the main thing for me about working there was when I joined them, everyone was a high achiever and I was straight out of university. I hadn't really worked in industry before um, and it, it just basically being in that environment forced you to have to raise your game. You were expected to be up there with them. So you just had to do it. Whereas I think that there are different organizations where you're maybe pigeonholed right from the start and, you know, and while well, you're just a graduate, so... You just need to go and do this thing over here. No, you had you were thrown in the deep end, given responsibility, and you know it, it was a fantastic place to work. Really enjoyed it. 
had great times, worked on some great missions, but also because it was a small business, um, I worked on all sorts of aspects of the satellite and learned so much as well. So it was really a great place to learn about the small satellite industry. Awesome. Awesome. Craig, I'm a big believer in having uh, folks who graduate from uh, university or college go out there and really direct their career and not just do what I call the caveman tool method of, of job hunting, which is fire out a blizzard of resumes to anybody and hope that something good comes in. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of people do, and it results in an accidental career and whatnot. So how did you, let, let this, this question will help the students, how did you pick uh, Surrey, Surrey Satellite to join? How did you pick them as a, as a target? Well, this is going to be not a great answer for you because, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm from Glasgow, which you can yeah. probably tell by the accent, and in the early 90s, there was really no jobs here. Mm. Great universities, so lots of good graduates, but there's a, there's a massive brain drain. So I went for jobs. I'd done power engineering at university, so electronics with power, power supplies, that type of thing. Um, and I applied for all sorts of different positions. There wasn't really many jobs going around at the time. Um, I messed up quite a few interviews. I was really green. I was so naive about everything. Um, and I just happened to get offered the job for at Surrey Satellites. I was very lucky. Yeah. I was lucky. That, <laughs> Because out of all the jobs I went for, I would have taken that. And it was the only job I got offered. Huh. And it's just maybe it was just fate. Yeah. Well, good, good for you. So, how, how, I mean, I guess it just made the short list for you by the benefit of being one of the very few space companies in, in your area then. Well, it was in Surrey. So in my area, I still had to move 400 miles. So mm -hmm. for you guys in the States, that's nothing. But it's the one end of the UK yeah. to the other. Yeah, in my case, I'm Canadian. I came from Vancouver, and I'm in North Carolina for the last 10 years. So I really did do the big move. But uh, yeah, 400 miles is, is some distance. And there's a lot of folks in North America who don't leave their hometown either. So it's, uh, it's yeah, it's, it's really up to the individual. But okay, so let's, let's see if you can give us a snapshot of the UK uh, space industry right now. I'm curious what you believe its principal expertise is or competitive advantages and maybe where it's headed. Well, I mean, the UK space sector is quite different to the US one um, and historically has been very much dominated by Airbus, used to be called Astrium and a few other things as well, Mark McConaughey in, in the past. So big, a big company, um, global company, really dominates our sector. You know, if there's any lobbying with government, it's by them. There's very little by any other companies because they just don't have the resource. So it really... In, our, in the UK, historically has skewed the activities towards that, the type of missions and things that the Airbus want to work on. Um, that's definitely changing now, though. There's been a real shake-up. There's an ambition within the UK to do 10% um, um, share of the global market um, to really up the revenues coming from, from the space sector into the UK. And the only way to grow is not through investing in, you know, just, it's difficult to do the same thing, but more of it, you know, you need to do something different. You need to look for disruptive technologies, you need to be supporting high growth, small businesses. Um, and that's, that means taking a different view. So that's what's been happening. So there's a real focus on applications. What are the new applications for space, especially using small satellites? Because, because of the great work that Surrey done over the years, and, and establishing the UK as a leader in small satellites, 
Um, it's then, <clears throat> it gave the government an appetite to invest more in that area. So whenever you talk to people in the UK, there's a lot of chat about small sat launch, small sat applications and small sat manufacturing. Hmm. So that's, there's a lot of investment going into that. And also I say, I should mention Scotland in this too, because Scotland has specifically highlighted that se- the, the small satellite sector as a growth sector for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of talk about Glasgow making more satellites than any other European city. Um, whereas 11 years ago, <clears throat> there was no satellites made here. Mm-hmm. So it shows you when, wow. when there's a disruptive technology, there's a real opportunity to grow something where there wasn't something before. There was no space industry in Scotland until very le- recently. And now it's one of the fastest growing sectors uh, for space in the, in the world. So right. we're going to be launching from Scotland. And I think, that, you know, it doesn't need to be federal government. I mean, regional governments that also can do a lot of good to support disruptive technologies in different sectors. And for Scotland, it happens to be in the area that we focus, which is small satellites. Okay. Uh, I want to go back to Surrey Satellite for, for a moment because I just thought of something. <laughs> you you said um, joining them, I mean, you could you could as I did once go to work for a large multinational company and you do get pigeonholed. You get put in your cubicle and told don't go out of your area, right? Your sphere of, of uh, operation and your scope, right? So if you're in production, don't go over to accounting and start messing around there. They don't like that. I know from personal experience, right? But when you work for a smaller company of high achievers, uh, you're in, they want you to do that. In fact, the problems are usually very large and sitting over there like an angry monster. And if you go over there, other people will find out, whoa, that thing exists, right? So you said uh, you had to up your game. And I'm curious if you've got an example or two of what that looked like. I think that would be really valuable for our, our viewers and listeners. Well, I think that there was really, there was a lot of initiative within individuals. So we need, if something needed done, you just go up and go on with it. I remember, like, we didn't have any reaction wheels for our satellites. All of the attitude control was done using kind of non-mechanical systems. So magnetometers, magnetorkers, there was a gravity gradient boom. That's how we done our pointing for our spacecraft for a long time. and. They, but there was a need to do three-axis control for, for imaging missions. There was no, no reaction wheels. But because I'd done some motors, drives work at university, I was like, I'll design a reaction wheel. So, <laughs> the so thing that breaks the most often, I think. <laughs> exactly. So we yeah. worked on it with um, some of the guys from the MEC team. Um, just put it together. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's many companies where you can just go, right, I, I, there's, I've got an idea, can I do this? You know what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so why don't you go and do that? <laughs> go, for, go for it. And actually that led to me working on the Rosetta Lander, um, mm-hmm. which um, we had were approached by DLR at the time. Um, because we'd been doing working wheels, they said like the, reaction, the, the flywheel that they were going to use on a lander kept on breaking when they vibed it because of the, mm-hmm. the, the vibration environment. was just so, mm-hmm. di- so difficult to meet the requirements. And they asked if you could do something, so we took it on. And I... I ended up working on a on a, a mission that landed on a comet. So there's a mm-hmm. bit of design <laughs> on a comet. Very cool. cool. Huh. Yeah, and, and you never know where that's going to lead. Yeah. So um, you mentioned municipal governments or local governments in that. You spent some time, and I think this is federal, on something called the UK Space Leadership Council. Uh, I did a very quick Google search of it and saw, I was surprised at how small of a group 
it is. I think there's six or eight people or something like that on it. It's not some huge board and that. Um, and I, I'm curious what what you did there and what kind of impact or how much, how little you think it has. Well, I'm, I'm actually involved still in that. It's changed its name now. It's called the Space Sector Council. It's evolved over the years because the, the different science ministers have wanted a different approach. So Space Leadership Council had David Willits as as the co-chair, and that was quite a big meeting. There was a lot of people, but he was a very keen supporter of space. Really interesting time. I actually started, though, with Lord Grayson, who was a Labour um, scientist mm -hmm. before that. Again, it's, it's really interesting to work closely with politicians and see how things work. Actually quite surprised at how fast things move. I was assumed that politics would be slow, but it was quite snappy, making decisions and just doing things. Um, it is, as I said earlier, you know, our sector is quite dominated by Airbus, um, and now Surrey is owned by Airbus as well. So um, kind of the main players in our sector in the UK are, are one company. So you find on these councils there is a relatively biased representation from from the kind of larger incumbents. And by the way, we still need big companies. So in the US, you need your Boeings, your Lockheeds, your Raytheons. You can't really, the, the sector wouldn't function without them. You also need the other players, the smaller players that are coming up with different ideas that are more agile. So it, there's a need for that. And I kind of see my voice on these councils that I, I attend as being, I'm not trying to be disruptive to the council meetings, but just to offer a different opinion, one that maybe so if you're a VC-backed small business looking to grow, you know, that's, there needs to be support from government for them. There needs to be support from government from, for companies that are, have got great ideas, have a great ambition, but maybe, maybe don't have all the tools to make it happen. Maybe need a bit more support from government. And that's where I, I try to make a contribution. I've always tried to be, you know, unbiased from my opinion, um, but also have a, to balance out the opinion of the larger companies that at the end of the day want to get as much money from the, from the government as they can, you know, which is, which is fine as well. You know, that's what their job is. Um, but there needs to be a balanced approach from government. And I try to help with that. Okay. I recall last fall, maybe something, seeing a, something, an article about a spaceport uh, coming possibly for the Edinburgh area. Um, how does space launch work when you're not an equatorial country? So, does it matter? It, no, it doesn't. I mean, it depends where you want to launch into. So the main launch site is going to be from the north of Scotland. So the one that the UK Space Agency selected is in Sutherland, which is um, it's quite far north from here. It's actually almost as far as driving to London from Glasgow. Um, it's quite a journey. Hmm. Um, if, you, if you like driving cars, there's something called the North Coast 500 which is basically a beautiful drive around the, the north of Scotland. There's great scenery. So if you fancy that, come to Scotland when all of this coronavirus um, <laughs> is done. <laughs> Do that. Um, but it's right in the north and there's nothing there. And the, the only issue is it does go over Icelandic waters, so fishing waters. So when they launch north, and the reason they launch north is so we can go into polar orbits. Mm. So you can get a sun-synchronous polar orbit from there, um, which is really... I mean, a lot of small satellites are launched into that, especially Earth observation satellites. So it's, it's actually quite a good orbit for us um, for most of our missions. Um, so that's, that's why it's useful to launch from here. Okay, well, let's, let's hope that that gets into operation uh, pretty quick. So yeah. Uh, yeah. you decided to form this company uh, called Clyde 
space. Um, how did you choose the name? And at what point, I mean, when did the decision hit you? Like, okay, I'm going ahead and doing this. Uh, that's a good question. So, um, actually, I'm, I wasn't, I'm, I wasn't very entrepreneurial, or at least I didn't think I was. Um, I, my wife was actually from here, too, from Scotland, and we'd been living down south for, you know, 11 years. And we started a family. Um, I had a one-year-old daughter. My wife was pregnant. And we decided we wanted to move back from Surrey to, to Glasgow to be closer to our families. And when I, I looked at Scotland, I thought, there's no space industry. And I've just spent a decade learning how to build and design satellites. And I can't use that for anything. So I really, I thought, well, that means a complete change in career, um, really. And I, I kind of was a bit scary, actually, to do that. And I didn't want to do it either. So someday, when I mentioned to a friend that I was going to move back to Glasgow, the first thing that he said to me was, and this is somebody I worked with at Surrey. He, he said to me, are you going to start your own business? And I was like, no, of course not. I, I'd never thought of it before. But because the funny thing is, because he asked me, I started thinking. And I got a couple of books that I read about what, what kind of person it takes to start a business. Got a bit of advice in it. And my wife and I decided that we were selling our house um, in England. So we'll just use some of the money to start a business. Huh. And if it doesn't work out, you know, I was just got a job. But actually, when you start a business, that's it. You start to get employees, you start to get contracts, you have obligations. There's no turning back. You're in. Um, you're in for the long haul. You need to make it work. And it was basically grit and determination. First seven years of starting a business is survival of the type of business. Mm -hmm. I mean, really. And also we had the 2008 crash during that yeah. period. So it was quite interesting times to start a business. But we, I think we had a really good... Um, plan the strategy of what we wanted to do with the type of technologies we're developing and CubeSats were quite we were the first commercial company really to understand the potential of CubeSats in the world um, and we we just went for it and just really evangelized about about CubeSats and what they could do and and I think that part of that was has helped to create the sector that we're in today you know you kind of we kind of had to make our market if you know what I mean it didn't exist. Mm -hmm. We had to fight to make it something that would be a sustainable thing. Well, that's a, yeah, that's a follow-up question. First, I am curious where the name came from. Why isn't it called yeah. Clark Aerospace, let's say, or something? Right, so funny, because, I mean, in the UK, Clay isn't a name. It's mm -hmm. the name of a river. In huh. the US, it's, it's a name people get called, so nobody's called Clyde here. But Clyde is, a, the river Clyde runs through Glasgow, mm -hmm. and there used to be, a third of all the ships in the world were built on the River Clyde. Oh, okay. About or so years ago. Huh. Um, and so there's a real heritage of, of engineering and shipbuilding and technology in, in this area. Uh, it was really a, a kind of a nod to that, to call the company Clyde Space, because the, the romantic vision was that we will, in the future, build a third of all the spaceships in the world. So that's okay. Well, that makes a heck of a lot more sense now <laughs> and I really I do like the heritage and if you're a if you're local to that area or even you know probably national right you're going to recognize that as a, as, as a thing so that's really cool this is Jason Gannigan from Cold Star Tech and I'm excited to share with you a new offer from Cold Star that we are bringing out to help both space founders and 
venture capitalists who fund space companies. And it's on two levels. The lower level is a VC who is looking at possibly funding a space company, but they just don't get it. Right? A lot of tech founders want to come out and create some sort of technical capability, but they do not understand business. And so you'll look and you'll go, where's the customer here? Where's the business model? And they'll go, huh? But I want to make rockets or something, right? And, and it's really cool. Well, that, as we know from the dot-com era, is not a viable business model. And so you bring us in. We've got great technical expertise on the space side. Folks who have done this sort of assessment before, like our technical engineering advisor, Dr. Rick Fleeter, myself in the process engineering field, plenty of other people with brains to look at this problem so that you don't have to blow your brains out trying to figure out how to make this work. And on the company side... It's a benefit for them because we will show them the roadmap to how you're going to get funded, how, how you will want to fund them, what changes to make to get VCs excited about putting money in. And so that's good for you. Right? The second level is at a, a deeper and higher level at the same time. It is for venture capitalists who have uh, given a seed round to a company a space company, and that has gone on for a little while, six months, a year, something like that, and it is time, as uh, COVID has made it, to double down or get out. Those are pretty much the choices, right? It's time to invest further in a thing we already know, which seems to be the direction VCs are going in right now. Uh, they don't seem to want to look at new things uh, or, or stop, just kill the project. And so the good news is, in that situation, there's a lot more going on. There's more meat for Cold Star experts to get in and, and analyze, right? You're going to have processes in place, whether they know it or not. We'll be able to flowchart those and, and maybe accurately document them for the first time so we can get some kind of value chain going in the organization. We'll be able to test whether the leadership is the right group of people or whether you're missing something, the strategic direction, the business model, all this stuff. So, if this sounds interesting to you, reach out to us. You can email me at jason at coldstartech.com or just connect with me and message me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to do it. And uh, I am excited to talk to you. The, the kind of transformation that we're able to offer here is beyond anything you'll see out there. And as a VC, this will save you so much time and energy, right? Like if you're a VC and you've got 100 companies to look at, you've got three days a year <laughs> to, to look at each one maybe, right? That's not really good enough, is it? Wouldn't it be better to have uh, experienced, expert space, people who understand space, right? Look at this investment and tell you, here's a grade, right? Here are several grade areas. Is this thing ready to pour gasoline on the fire or is it just going to go up in smoke? This is Jason Kanig from Cold Star Tech. Let's get back to the interview. I am curious though, and this is a thing I can delete out if you don't want to answer it, but I am curious how you got your first contracts because there you are, you're a brand new startup. Yeah, you've got all your technical expertise, you know, and you can probably call a few friends in kind of thing, you know, it's a, hey, I'm funded, let's, let's get started and build something. But I mean, where did you go and what did you do to get your first order? Well, so, I mean, a, a couple of things. So we got some support from Scottish uh, governments. So they've got an enterprise mm -hmm. scheme. So we got a grant, which I worked on for quite a few months to, to get, um, which allowed us to develop a power system for CubeSats. Um, so we started, we'd already started that. It wasn't really a contract, so it wasn't our first bit of revenue, really. Mm -hmm. um, but I started going to conferences. In fact, the first mm -hmm. conference I went to was in Japan at the IEC. And that was October 2005. Mm. And I just actually full-time started working in the company two weeks before. 
So I had to stand with banners <laughs> and go product data sheets, and it was just me. Because um, you have to do that. To, you have to like show like we're here and this is what we want to do. So thinking big already. Um, but the real first contract we had came from a friend, um, somebody who I'd worked with, I knew that I started a company and knew that I was doing power systems for small satellites and you needed some solar panels. Hmm. So I um, basically I got a call from some of the guys in, in South Africa at Sunspace and he said, we need two solar panels in four weeks. Can you deliver them? And I was like, yeah. So in four, it actually took four and a half weeks, but we developed, I managed to source cells. They provided the, the substrates. We, we um, developed our processes, destroyed a test coupon, we completely destroyed it. I had to do another one with different processes, but verified all of that, made the panels, environmentally tested the panels and delivered them in four and a half weeks. And maybe right. a larger company might not have been able to turn around that fast. I think you would be able to cool. do it again. And the funny thing is, um, Andrew Strain, who's our CTO, he, he just started the week that we got the contract. And at the end of it, he turned around to me and he said, is it always going to be like this? Because <laughs> <laughs> it was the most, you know, I mean, insane. It, there's lots of funny stories about it. We vacuum bagged the solar panels after we put, laid the cells down with the adhesive and they had to go in the oven to cure. But we were using, we were borrowing somebody else's clean room. So we tried to put it in the oven in a clean room and it didn't fit. So hmm. I, took, I took the solar panels in the vacuum bag so they were sealed and put them in my oven in my house huh. to cure the adhesive. So, you know, and you know, actually they still work. They're launched years ago and they still mm-hmm. operate. So um, when, you're, when you're looking for your first contract, you do whatever yeah. it takes, you know, <laughs> to get that. So and I also was, like you were not trying to build the whole thing. You were, you were building a component, uh, you know, yeah. and, and not being responsible for the, the entire picture to begin with. Yeah. How long did it take before you got to the point where you were able to, to handle the full satellite build? Well, we started off doing components because that was the original business plan, really. Mm. But what I realized quite early on was there, was there were no commercial suppliers of CubeSats. People were building CubeSats, but it's mostly universities mm-hmm. or research organizations. So there was, no, there was no companies doing it. And it was, it was still being very much dismissed by all the big companies. Oh, mm-hmm. CubeSats are toys. Um, and all the space agencies weren't really taking much notice of it. You know. But the funny thing is, by the way, see, to make a satellite that's that small, to do all the same things that a larger satellite does, it's not a toy. It's very, very difficult to do that. Mm-hmm. So, but we, we started off quite early um, looking at ways to do our first satellite and develop that competence. So we worked from, I'd say, about 2007. We were actively trying to pursue that. And it took us until 2014 to get something launched. So it shows you how long it took. Um, we had no money. Um, that was the biggest problem. I raised in total over over the years with Clydespace before we became AEC Clydespace, less than a million dollars. So it's, I mean, you see these other companies today that are raising tens of millions of dollars and doing different things. So we done all of that with pretty much nothing, no money. So it's very difficult, um, very bootstrapped way of doing it. It sounds to me like you, yeah, you were pioneering that industry, which is uh, one of the <laughs> hardest things to do. You could get shot with the arrows in the back on that. <laughs> well, we had a few, there, was a, there was a few times the company was teetering on the edge, I can tell you, um, from a cash point of view. Yeah. 
Nice well, to get that's that's part of being in business, but yeah. Um, but then to see, I could I could think it would be a little frustrating, you know. It's like, man, I staked out this ground. I'm the one who mapped it out for you and showed you it could be done. And then here you guys come bouncing along and people are throwing money at you because I've proven the concept. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I hope that, there's a good reflection on on you and that you're able to do that more easily. There was a there was a venture capital fund in the UK that wanted to invest in us, but we weren't really looking for investment at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but they were so interested in what we were doing, they invested in a startup who was trying to do the same as us. So mm. I take credit for them getting some money. <laughs> <laughs> well, all I'll say about that is the values and the technical skills and all that can't always be easily transferred over to some other organizations. The, uh, em the enemies of the Roman Empire would try and create Roman legions of their own, and it just didn't work for some. Nobody really knows why. <laughs> so hopefully you'll have some some market protection in there. Um, the small sat field, this is a thing that we really get into here. If you look at a pie chart of the, the partial plus full mission failure rates and add them all up, no matter, you know, you can look at it as different charts and they'll add up to slightly different numbers, but it is awful. It's like four times out of 10 or more. You see this 40 plus percent failure rate of the mission partial to full. And I don't see that in, in other industries and that. Um, what do you do at, at Clyde Space in the quality assurance side when you're producing CubeSats to make sure that this doesn't happen. You're producing CubeSats in bulk uh, and somehow you've got to refine the QA so that uh, reliability is, is good. Well, I think that, I mean, there's a, this, quite a, this could be quite a long answer, but I'm not going to Go ahead. make it that long. <laughs> um, the, the reason is the failure rates are there because a lot of the early CubeSats were from universities and I see 95% of the mission objectives were met before launch. It was a lot to do with learning about, you know, all the integration and the, the, the design and getting the spacecraft ready. But, you know, there's, I think there's been a lot of university missions that are really not focused on the quality assurance side, more on the technology and, you know, like some universities were building all their systems from scratch, designing everything from scratch. It's incredibly difficult to do that and get it all right. You know, there's always going to be something that's missed in there. Um, the other thing um, is, is that a lot of the, the companies that, were that are launching lots of spacecraft, their approach is we'll try it and see if it works and we'll learn from that. And they are actually, I think for a, for a long time, Planet Lab had a minimum failure rate I think it was 15%. If they weren't, if 15% of their satellites weren't failing, they were doing something wrong and it mm. maximized 30%. So they knew they were launching satellites that just weren't going to work. Um, so that would also add to this, this figure. And the, the other thing is that I think is fundamental is, well, test is, I think, underestimated in terms of, is not undervalued by some people in the sector. Testing is vital to make sure your satellite works. I've heard of satellites being launched where they haven't tested parts of it. And lo and behold, what doesn't work? That thing they didn't test. You need to test everything and it needs to be thorough. And, you know, there's a reason why space can be expensive. I mean, we, are, we think our spacecraft are incredibly good value. But we know we're not the cheapest. But we, I, I look at the other companies that are cheaper than us and I think, how can you do all the testing that's required for your satellite? to make sure it's going to work mm -hmm. and do it at that price. I just don't see it happening. Right. So what's the point in launching something? Where's the value in launching something that doesn't work? Mm -hmm. You know, you'd rather spend 
you know, twenty percent more and launch something that does work. I mean, I would, I would if I were someone. So, yeah, uh, there's a process order issue typically, and then the rush, uh, that the testing phase is on the back half of the schedule, and it's the thing that gets squished by people uh, when trouble shows up in the front end of that of that production schedule. So there's, there's another thing that I think is forgotten in our sector, and there's a lot of new new entrants who, and not everyone does this, but I've heard a few people that. Like, oh, we don't need to know about the last 50 years of, of space flight and what the lessons learned are. We'll find out ourselves and because we're great. Um, but however, there's been a lot of really clever people that have done a lot of hard work to develop a set of guidelines about how you design and test satellites and you make them, what the quality level should be. And I think the, the, the trick is for small satellites is how you tailor them properly and appropriately so that your product is still high quality and reliable, but doesn't cost what a James Webb telescope is going to cost, you know. Um, you, you do need product assurance and it needs to be controlled. So we've been ISO accredited for, well, since 2008. So we have our processes and we follow them and they get audited. Get audited every six months now, actually. Um, and that's important because if you don't, especially when we're going to volume production, if you can't guarantee that every single thing that you produce is the same, has the same level of quality assurance and works the same way, then you're going to end up having failures and there's going to be problems later. So that's, that's the thing that's going to drive the, the, the failure rate figure in the opposite direction. Right. So, what would you say to the academic leaders who, who go, well, it's just my students and every year it's a new batch of students and uh, we don't really need to worry about processes because it's a different group of students producing a different satellite every year. We're not trying to you know, create a uniform product. Well, I mean, they're probably, those academics are probably learning how to manage a program with undergrads or, or postgrads to work on satellites. One of the programs that I've worked on a lot is the FalconSat program at the, U, at the Air Force Academy, Colorado Springs. They've got a great program. FalconSat is, what they do is they, they have, I think it's over two or three years they have their, their students, they're all undergrads. It's a different cohort of, of, of team every year, so they need to do a handover. And their missions work. They do a great job. They're used by AFRL to do different things and fly in different experiments. And they operate the satellites from there. They, so they've got a great team that know how to make this work. And it's, I think the, the students that come out of that program, the ones that I've seen anyway, are, are extremely good at what they do. They understand spacecraft and understand the processes needed to make it work as well. That is a new program name for me, so thank you. <laughs> I'm going to go hunting for that later. <laughs> Maybe you could shoot me a link. Uh, I guess uh, it is coming into late April 2020 when we're recording this and we're in the middle of the COVID thing. Is, is the UK locked down? It's, it's not, it, it's weird here. It's spotty. Uh, the county that I'm in is locked down, but the next one over is not. So I could literally drive over there and go walk in the park. <laughs> and businesses are operating normally, but a few miles away here, no, everything's shut down. So is the company operating right now or is everybody furloughed? Or Yeah, well, we've been operating continuously, but we have changed the way we're working. I think about 80% of us are working from home. Huh. And actually, it's worked out quite well for us because we have, um, there's two big projects we're working on, Utilsat and Orbcom. So we're doing missions for them. They're both at various design stages or come starting manufacture a little bit so all the subsystems but we've mostly been able to do all of this at home um, we're, we're 
we have some people in the office in the clean room doing manufacturing and tests, but we're doing social distancing and all that type of thing with different processes in place. And I think in the UK, there's going to be a shortly going to be a return to some form of normality, but it's going to need to be with different conditions. And we're, I, I believe we're going to have to prove that we're meeting the social distancing guidelines. Mm. Um, that we're not, so in the UK, it's, it's, it's countrywide that you're not meant to be doing. Okay. Uh, so I, know a, I, know I, I see the news in the US is a bit different, but yeah. you know, we've managed to keep going. I, I feel sorry for, for some businesses that really can. I mean, the airlines, for example, and you know, different types of shops and restaurants have had to close. It right. must be really difficult, but we're lucky that we can still work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's end on a happy note. Um, and you may have covered this already. And if it is, well, let's find a second most. <laughs> um, what mission have you worked on that you're the most proud of? I thought maybe it's the first one that you were talking about with baking the solar panels, but uh, is there another one? Well, I mean, there's been a lot of great missions and a lot of great people. And, you know, we're blessed to work in a, a sector where there's some great you know it's very exciting you know putting things into space i mean who wouldn't want to if you're an engineer who wouldn't want to do that but also you know i've met a lot of great friends in the sector so i'm working on different missions but the most the mission i'm most proud of is ucube one which is a three u cubesat and it was launched in 2014 and that was scotland's first satellite it was our first satellite it was very difficult to make that work financially. Um, we had half of our company working on it with pretty much no money. And, you know, just like, you know, managing our cash flow mainly and managing the team and getting, getting everything done that needed to be done to make that mission work, that was a real challenge. You know, apart from the fact that technically um, making a, spa- a spacecraft is very difficult to do, especially your first one. So that... I think is the proudest, um, as what the mission I'm most proud of, um, and I also set our company up to to be doing what we're doing just now without transitioning from components to doing spacecraft with that first mission. We would never be where we are today. Mm-hmm. So it was it was hugely pivotal to the business and to me. Right on. Where can people go who are interested to find out more about uh, AAC Clyde Space and keep up with the new developments? Well, we are on social media. We actually do quite a lot of that. So on LinkedIn and Twitter and on, on Facebook, if you just search AAC Clyde Space, you'll find us. Um, we also have a website, which is quite good, um, which is fairly new, which is um, www.aac-clydespace.com. Oh, actually, that's wrong. We've got a different email address because we've got a dot space in it. So it's aac-clyde.space is the website. Because if you've got a dot space um, email address, it gets put into everything's junk. So we've got a dot com for that. Okay. Interesting. I'll link to that in the description below. Well, fantastic. This has been a lot of fun. My guest today has been the founder and CSO of AAC Clyde Space, Craig Clark. Thanks for being here. No problem. Thanks very much for asking me um, to come along as well. I really appreciate it. And uh, um, maybe see you again soon. Mm. 
This is Jason Canningham from Cold Star Tech. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do want to get email notifications of upcoming episodes or episodes that have just been released, and maybe a little news sprinkled in here and there, you can sign up for email notifications at coldstartech.com slash MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring. That's another little show that I do. It's uh, once, twice, three times a week, something like that. Anytime there's news or uh, an update on who I'm meeting and, and what I'm uh, studying in the space field. So you can go check that out. On the YouTube channel, I can do something that I cannot do on uh, Anchor for the audio-only side of things. The YouTube channel allows me to have playlists, and so you might want to go to the channel, the Cold Star Tech channel, and check out those playlists because you will find, you can go down a rabbit hole basically into several areas like space law and policy, uh, small sats, and I think that's a lot easier than trying to scroll through 130 episodes or something like that, (laughs) looking for the thing that you want. So I recommend going and checking that out. And remember, if you're ready to take your space business to the next level or you're a VC looking for a deep and very valuable insight into a space company you're looking at investing in or investing further in, come and talk to us. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.